Welcome to AM Best Audio. I'm John Weber for AM Best TV. My guest today is Dave North, Executive Chairman of Sedgwick. Dave is responsible for providing overall corporate leadership and strategic development and growth. He joined Sedgwick in 1995. Under his leadership, Sedgwick has grown to become the largest TPA in the industry. And Dave, what a pleasure it is to have you here today. Well, thank you, John. Appreciate it. So Dave, 500 people way back in the beginning, yeah. over 30,000 today. How the heck did you do that? Oh, it's magic. You know, <laughs> no, it's, you know, it's just one of those things. The insurance industry, I don't think a lot of people understand just how broad we are and how much we touch everything that happens in our society. And the claims world was just one of those small niches that was early to develop. The brokers were strong, going back to the Lloyd's days, and insurers were strong. And all of them had an element of claims. But the TPAs, you know, in the early 70s were just sort of coming into their own. And we found a niche. We found a a, a way of thinking about claims from the employer standpoint, really the risk, the ultimate risk taker and started customizing programs, listening to what the, what the insureds wanted, and started to understand this real value change of engaging with the claimant, understanding the ultimate risk taker, the insurer, and creating that interface between them, and, and then it grew. Beyond that growth, you've had to recruit talent all this time, and everybody talks about the challenges of recruitment. How were you able to recruit the talent? You know, in today's day and age, I think a lot of people say it must be the most difficult times to recruit because they see the headlines, right? They talk about unemployment levels and what happened post-COVID and everything else. We've sort of found a little different niche. One of the things about the Gen X, the newer generations that are out today, as we read about all the time, they care about things in our society. They care about others. They care about the environment. They care about corporations. And the one thing about claims in particular is what we do for a living is care about things that went wrong. You know, I say it all the time. It's uh, one of the most common questions that executives might get asked when, for those of us in the insurance industry is, what do you do? And I tried for many years to explain, you know, at a cocktail party or to the neighbors, you know, about insurance. And I would start out with, you know, risk taking and underwriting and the complexity of this and loss ratios. And I would lose them just like I lost you. And you care about this. Then I realized the real story was this. And now I say 20,512. 20,512. Today, in the United States, 20,512 people are going to wake up today to go about their day. They're going to go shopping or go to school or run errands or go to work, do the things that they do. And sometime today, for those 20,000 people, something bad is going to happen. They're going to get a car accident. House is going to catch on fire. They're going to get hurt at work. They're going to find out they have cancer. Maybe they're going to find out they're pregnant. But for each of those people, by the end of today, they're going to reach out to somebody at Sedgwick and they're going to tell them it'll be okay. It's going to be okay. And that aspect of insurance, that what we're really all about, which is taking care of problems, legitimate ones, that occurred and providing the financial recovery for that is what the claims professional gets to do. And going back to your question, 
there's a lot of people in our society today that are looking for employment, looking for jobs that give them a sense of accomplishment, of caring about things around us. I can't think of a better way than in the claims industry. And we really promote that to the people that are looking to come into our industry and provide them an opportunity to care about others. Dave, I want to talk to you a little bit about leadership because you've been doing this for a long time. And way back when, 1995, mm -hmm. you had about 500 employees at Sedgwick. Yeah. Today, upwards of 30,000. Right. What are the challenges of managing that many people relative to managing a much smaller company 30 years ago? Yeah, it's uh, it was really a learning curve for me. You know, it's one of those things that you can read about it in a book, but until you actually sit in the chair and experience it, I don't think you have a full appreciation. In the early days, 500 or 1,000 or 2,000 people, you pretty much knew everybody, maybe not everybody exactly by name, but you could associate people and it was a very personal sort of connection and people had problems, they would call me and I would call somebody and stuff happened. When we started to get up to, you know, five or 10,000 people, everything really started to change. The connection with people was different than there was office managers that had hundreds of people in their offices and I started to feel a little disconnect. And then when we transitioned into 25 or 30,000, you realize that it's not all about me. It took me a while to catch on to that. It's really about the culture that you put into the organization and leadership and empowering them. And, and I wish I, during my career I could have found, would have found a better way to describe the 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 lifeblood that's in the word culture everybody probably everybody that sat in this chair with you has used that word at some point in time often it's a poster on the wall it's it's what the values were it's what your founder believed in it's it's what the guy in the corner office or the girl in the corner office believed in and that's on the poster what's really the trick about all of that is how do you make sure that culture is part of how people come to work, how they feel about the environment, not just the customer, but about being in the company now, working at home or, or, or being, at, uh, being in the office. And that's something that is not static. It's not something I wrote 25 years ago and people follow it today. Cultures change. We've done a lot of acquisitions over the years. And people say, well, how do you take that company you just acquired and indoctrinate your culture into them? And I said, well, first of all, we would never try to do that. Culture is something that evolves over time. It, it is who you are. It's, it's not what you want to be. It's who you actually are. So if you, um, if you believe that caring about people or caring about customers is part of your culture, the only way to make that part of your culture is to demonstrate it every day because everybody will see how you do it. If I say, take care of our customers, and then I never use the words, never demonstrate that throughout my day, people will quickly understand what the CEO really cares about. So culture evolves. You do a big acquisition, the culture is gonna change. You come out of COVID, and all of a sudden you're 25 or 30 or 40% millennials, your culture will change. 
that's a good thing. It's a good thing if you embrace it. You have to put parameters on it to make sure that you aspire to the things in culture that are most important to you. And you have to put parameters on the fact that there's some behaviors that are just unacceptable and you have to root them out of the culture. But the core of it is, is who you are. And I think that's a lot of where Cedric's growth was. Our culture was about customers and about discovering what they wanted and needed and and then making that part of our business plan. So let's talk a little bit about who you are. How would you describe your leadership style? Okay, that's a really good question. Um, it, 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 it's, <laughs> it's a difficult question because it, it sounds like it wants a one or two word answer. And I, and I think that's hard for me to do. And I'll, I'll try this. Um, when I, when I say to people about Cedric, they say, well, you know, how did you get where you are and how did you stay as the leaders in the industry? I say, you have to do almost everything right almost all the time. It's, it's a battle to climb the mountain, to become larger, to become recognized in a particular industry, to, to get to that point where you're perceived to be a leader in the industry. Once you get there, it's brutal to stay. You know, there's so many books that have been written about how companies have achieved a status in their particular industry, and then 10 years, they're gone. Because getting there is one thing. You're fighting for something. You've got a vision. You've got goals. You got, you're, you're energized every time you have a victory. But when you get to the top of that mountain, it's somehow you start to believe that you own the mountain, that you deserve to be there, and that's when you get slaughtered by competition. So... We, we try to have this, this sense that you have to do almost everything right all the time. And I think leadership has to emulate that. Um, little things. I don't walk by a piece of paper on the floor. I don't know if it came from my grandfather or my father who you know ran small businesses and everybody did a little everything. But I believe if I walk by a piece of paper on the floor, I have enabled every single colleague at Cedric to walk by a piece of paper on the floor. If I stop and pick it up, I guarantee you nobody else is going to walk by a piece of paper on the floor. And little things like that of demonstrating what's most important is what creates leadership, it creates culture, it creates an environment where people want to be there. So is that something that comes naturally or do you have to cultivate that within yourself every day? Uh, I don't think, I don't think it's either one of those absolutes. I, I, I'm, I very much believe that, that life is a learning experience, right? I, um, I've been fortunate enough to be chairman of the board of a university and maybe as a chairman of a board of a university, I should be so articulate about the value of education and how much you're going to gain at the university. And that piece of paper is going to be your gateway to the world, right? I, I know all the words that others have used. I don't really believe that's true. I believe that universities are there to teach people, if you will, to learn how to learn that in our society, especially today, because of technology, things change in this world, I think they say, about every three years. There's a fairly significant evolution that occurs. Well, there's nothing in a textbook or nothing that a leader could have learned in school to enable you to be as good three years ago as you want to be today. So you have to take every day as an opportunity to learn 
and I say learn how to learn that that be open to conversations with people that you meet customers and brokers and insurers and people on the street what is it that's changing in their world how do you take that bring it into the, the responsibility you have as a leader and let people in the organization understand that that's now really important to us so I very much try to be open to conversations, to challenges, to, um, to what should we do next. And then I'm also very clear that the leader's the ultimate stop, that you actually have to make decisions. So um, there's a, a great saying about sometimes we weigh the votes and sometimes we count the votes. And at Sedgwick, it's very much that. It would be kidding if it wasn't. That uh, there's a lot of times that we gain consensus about issues, and there are a lot of times where it just hits my desk, and I have to make a decision, and I'm okay with that. You know, you touched on it a little bit earlier, but did managing through the pandemic force you to alter your leadership style? And if so, was that something that became permanent or no so oh dr uh, dramatically changed things um we were very quick to send everybody home that was a i remember that weekend that was a uh, a lot of conversations with a lot of people i had conversations within sedgwick i had conversations with the ceo of aig the ceo of of Marsh, the, the CEO of RIMS, we, there was a lot of us that were talking over that weekend as to what was going to happen with this now impending pandemic when we pretty much all decided over that weekend that it was time to go home, that people needed the safety of being out of the offices. Um, that was hard because you know, I'm, you know, I'm 66 years old now. I grew up in an environment of, you know, coming into the office and everybody in there being around and sharing. And that was sort of the center of the universe. It's where we collaborated about so many things. So to learn quickly that you actually could run the company in a distributed basis, that you could run the company and maintain culture, but you had to do almost everything differently. And you just had to adapt to that. Um, has it changed permanently? Absolutely. For one, as I said, it's been three years. Everything would have changed in three years, whether we were in the office or not. So can you attribute it all to COVID? Can you attribute it to the new technology and chat GBT and other things that are out there? Or can you attribute it to, you know, the growth of the younger generations or just COVID? I don't know, but everything has changed. And the companies that are doing really well right now have changed during that period. Are there any particular leaders that you've tried to emulate, whether it be a football coach, <laughs> uh, a business leader, a family member? Is there somebody that you draw from in your leadership? Yeah, no, as much as I um, really aspire to be one of those people that people say is a good leader, I. I guess most CEOs would say that, right? They want to be sort of regarded in that way. Uh, the one thing that I have been unable to say is, um, have I had a mentor, a person or two? And I would say I've been very fortunate that there are a number of human beings that I've been around that I've been able to gain aspects or, or characteristics of 
it started with my grandfather and father, as I said. We were in, had small businesses in Michigan and in uh, in Pennsylvania. I learned um, about picking up paper. I learned about that everybody had to be engaged in the organization, had to be working towards what it was all about. Um, I, so I learned from them. I've learned from other business leaders. Brad Martin uh, is a very dear friend who um, bought and owned uh, Saks Fifth Avenue. He's a wonderful entrepreneur and um, a, a believer in faith and business and leadership. I'm around uh, Colonel Dan Rooney from Folds of Honor, who's a, an amazing fighter pilot and patriot and created an organization that takes care of uh, families of dependents that were killed in action. Uh, I have four younger brothers, and I learn from them every day how they take care of a child's issue or a, uh, or a marital situation or an economic situation. So I, I've been blessed. I have a, a lot of experiences of people, and I would say that the, the Dave North that exists today is, uh, I want to say, the best of all of them, and I've just been fortunate to be around a lot of really good people. Dave, I'm always fascinated by managers and how they manage groups of people and individual people as well. And how do you do that? It should, should you manage evenly across all groups and across all people, or do you find that one person might be motivated by a kick in the pants while another one needs a pat on the head? Yeah, yeah I think that's true. I mean, I, the human nature is we're all individuals, right? But I think it's also true that the leader is an individual as well. So there are circumstances that leaders have skills or preferences that are better for kicking the pants or better for, you know, pat on the back. Part of what I think comes together to make a good leader is having a team around them that understands the leader and what the leader's best skills are. Um, so I often say that one of the best qualities of a leader is to be predictable. It, it almost doesn't matter where on that continuum you are, but if you are predictable, your team knows how to predict your response to certain situations and then they tend to put you in a circumstance that allows you to use your style if you're if you're not good at kicking the pants they're probably not going to expose you to having to kick a lot of people in the pants right so then you appear as a better leader because your team and you for your preferences and style because this is not a one-person job right there's there's no one woman or one man that really runs an organization it's an entire team and and how well you have built a team around you how long they've been with you how well they understand the culture the objectives of the organization then leaders tend to get credit for that but the truth is the credit should be that you brought a great team in I get the impression that the hardest part, if not one of the hardest parts anyway, is conflict resolution. How do you handle that within the organization? Yeah, I, um, when I start to talk to either you know college students or um, to others in the industry, I tell them I, I have the greatest job in the world, right? It's, I've always wanted to be a CEO um, and now executive chairman. Um, Part of it was because whatever, I mean, today is a, a truism. Whatever I'm going to spend the most time on today, I probably did not even know existed yesterday. That's the nature of being a CEO and, and talking about conflict resolutions. So um, 
the reason is is that if everything is working really well those folks the team is handling hundreds of things every day resolving things that never ever get to my desk so the one that gets to my desk today that I didn't know about yesterday will take a focused amount of time 30 45 minutes maybe an hour which in total of the day is a high percentage of my day of, on one subject and all of the discretionary time all of the research all of the sit around and deliberate all the what ifs and therefores and everything else all that time they they used all that appropriately right they were trying to resolve it so when it hits my plate i have a defined period of time i have to ask the right questions in the amount of time available and then make a decision and i love that part of being an executive in a company that that as they say, that is where the buck stops. It, it is the moment where the organization is going to decide this resolution or that resolution, and then you're going to live with the results. We get a lot of them right. We don't get them all right. Um, you know, as they say, it's, it's as long as you're making decisions, you get a chance to make good decisions, maybe not the first time, maybe the second time. Are you able to get those subordinates to bring you the bad news, to bring you those hard decisions? I get the impression very often subordinates do not want to bring bad news to the boss. Yeah, I think that's a little bit of the, the, the message that the boss sends out. You asked the question earlier about, you know, bosses who are going to get irate every time something goes wrong. They're not going to get a lot of bad news because they don't want to get yelled at. And so they'll just keep that news away from the boss. That's that's a bad cultural situation, I think. Um, so no, I I tend to get I tend to get a balance of the news. I'm not naive. I hear better I hear more better news than I do bad news. Um, maybe that's why I've just been lucky to be at Cedric, where most of the news is good, so it, it works out all right. On the flip side, how do you deliver the bad news to the employees? Straight up, candid. Um, you know, people have an amazing capacity uh, to to shift and adjust if you are just direct. But they have to see that you are consistent about that. Um, in the term of my career, I have fired clients, large clients. Now, we're a service industry. We're in the business of going out to sell our services to the biggest corporations on the planet. But from time to time, we end up with a bad match, a, um, particularly in the world we live in where we're dealing with employees and customers of the largest corporations on the planet it's a it's a it's a time when when their own culture whatever their particular brand is what they represent when that brand is challenged the most is when somebody is injured or ill as a result of their products or services right there's a question of the brand of that client and the person in the middle of it is Sedgwick so how we handle that how we understand the 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 empathy that goes into that says a lot about that company so you have to learn to deliver bad news to claimants we don't approve all claims so you have to somebody in the other end legitimately believes that something went wrong but the policy or the facts of the accident may not allow compensability or our ability to assume on behalf of whoever the insurer is for that loss. So they still had a legitimate loss in their mind. We have to tell them why that's not covered by this insurance policy. So it's, 
it's not um, it's not an easy conversation. But most people, when you explain the facts, when you are candid with them, and then when they believe there's a, a trustworthy relationship, that's um, okay. As a segue, it's why DEI is so important. I I know that in this society, there's a lot of conversations about you know, women and people of color and, and all of the reasons why morally that should be where, where employers are, which we support, and we could talk about that. But in our business, it's also equally important when we're dealing with claimants. When you have an Asian head of family who's lost their job and a um, African-American head of family and a white head of family, each of them because of their cultural backdrops, backgrounds, their responsibility in the family, their belief of their role in the family, they, they receive information slightly different. So having a good cultural alignment with the diverse population in this country allows us to actually adjust claims better. So today, you know, we're 40% people of color in our organization. We have 68% of our colleagues are females. And it allows us to more culturally align with the demographics of the claimants and therefore, I think, get better re resolution of the claim for those that are paying us to do it. It also happens to be the right thing to do and allows us to attract talent that, unfortunately, other companies are ignoring these days so we get back to your early question about recruiting people it gives us a whole pool of brilliant people to bring into our organization that others have not yet uncovered i want to try to dig into your psyche a little bit here <laughs> any books movies ted talks things like that that have particularly inspired you and your leadership style rocky rudy <laughs> <laughs> You know, mine's probably a little more real life. Um, on the, uh, I, there were two incidents in early on in my life that formed a lot of my views of right and wrong. Um, you know, I grew up um, in the 60s, and when Dr. King was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, where our headquarters now is, I was living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and my, I was in fourth grade, and my father and grandfather had a single location grocery store in an all-black neighborhood in in downtown pittsburgh and when the race riots um, came to pittsburgh our store was targeted because we were a white owned store even though all of our friends we lived in the neighborhood we were part of that community but when the organizers came in to support this this transition that was going on in our country that needed to go on in our country uh, we were targeted and the store was firebombed and standing there watching that store burn to the ground and then years later having the opportunity to serve on the board of directors of the national civil rights museum was a mental connection to me of i didn't know what that event was doing to me back in the 60s but i then found that it formed fibers in me that connected uh, i um, in my one of my earliest jobs um, i was working for a, a service company and um, 
my best friend sat in the office right next to me. She was a director. I was not. And we were working hard and loving life and moving along. And I got called down to the president's office one day. And the president said, congratulations, we're going to make you a director. And I'm going, wow, that's so, I was so excited about that. And he handed me a set of keys and said, you go out and talk to my assistant. And she'll explain to you all the perks that are coming with this job. And I'm going, I didn't know. I had a company car. How cool is that? And so I get all the information. And I race back down to the hall, and I went to see my friend who was in the door next door. I go, you never told me as a director you got a company car. This is so cool. And she looked up to me and says, you don't know, do you? I go, what is that? She go, I, I don't get a car. The female directors don't get cars, only the men. The belief is that our husbands provide the vehicles for us. And, and I was in my late 20s. I don't know where it came from, but I left her office, walked back down the hall, and gave them back the keys. Today, when I tell that story, it sounds like I had some big moral imperative and I was fighting for the rights of equality back then. That wasn't true. It was just wrong. It was just not the right thing for them to do that. And for me to take those keys made me part of that and I rejected that. A tinge of so, guilt even. So um, uh, a lot of great speakers, a lot of great books. Um, but I think a lot of it is whatever your moral fiber is, and and then you feed that with those books and 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 uh, and engagements over time. So, want to shift gears here a little bit. Uh, you have or seem to have a very different relationship with the trade media than most of your colleagues. Perhaps I don't quite have it right, but you don't seem to have the same wariness or suspiciousness. Where does that come from? Well, um, <laughs> we tell your colleagues all the time how uh, we just believe that this industry that we are all fortunate to, to work in is a complicated environment. It is an incredibly important environment. I, I've heard speakers over time that I uh, continue to talk about how fundamental insurance is to society today that you can't get a driver's license you can't buy a car you can't you, you can't go to work if you don't have insurance it enables everything that goes on and we Sedgwick has hired 3,000 new people this year alone right 3,000 new people many of which are coming into our industry at the first time your industry the 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 groups that do education and communication and report about what's going on are part of our ability to educate those 3,000 people to to take the the science or the data or the, the the parameters of our industry and communicate it to not only to our employees but also to the claimant population that, that we serve. So we don't see a difference between what we're trying to do and what what the trades are trying to do, the, the press is trying to do, we think we need the press to feed the press our knowledge, our information, our insights, and then you'll sort through that, right, with with others that give you the information, and then you have the ability to distribute it, distribute it to many, many more people than we can get to. 
And I think that's a very, very valuable and important part of our industry. But for that, it would be much more difficult for us. So we have a lot of respect um, for what the, the press does and, and try to support it in as many ways as we can. I heard a story about you uh, and, and a blogger who wrote something less than flattering about your company. Would you share with us how you handled that? Uh, but there was only one. <laughs> We're in the claims business. I'm pretty sure there's one of those almost every day because people are not satisfied. You know, I uh, bloggers bloggers have a you have to learn to deal with bloggers with a different right. They have we're in this country this free society the, the 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 freedom of the press is a real thing and i support that so um some some presses have checks and balances and 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 a sense of responsibility of fact checking and other things and others operate in a different speed and a different set of parameters and bloggers you know an individual can write a blog and put it out there and it's just their point of view so i i respect that they have that point of view i don't always agree with that point of view and i think the the one or two that you're talking about they have the right to say that and we all have the right to say that's crap right and, the, uh, the story i had heard was that you address the gentleman directly with a phone call and that it changed the whole dynamic of his reporting and uh, your relationship with him. Yeah, it happened in front of 2,000 of our closest friends at an insurance conference, but um, I think that's the same thing that I was talking about before, is just being candid. And if you're, if somebody challenges you with either um, their view of your belief in what's right and wrong or your belief in how your company should make money or what's fair or ethical, you have the right to respond to that. And if your set of facts um, differs from or maybe is new information for what they had in front of them before, then their point of view may or may not change. In that particular situation, you know, I was given the opportunity to explain the facts and the facts were not something that that individual, I think, had to form their opinion. And then everything was okay. Change your relationship with him? Changed my relationship. So you've been at this 30 years now? Uh, 40 more or less okay. in different at industries. Sedgwick. Uh, at Sedgwick, 28 years. 28 years. Yeah. I don't imagine that you're going to get another 28 years in. So what will your advice be to the person who takes your place? What will your, what your, will your leadership, your best advice be to that person? Yeah, that's... Uh, that may be the subject for a whole different interview. Um, you know, trans, we all talk about as a matter of process and companies succession planning. And it's very easy to talk about succession planning when it's those people, that leader, that subordinate, that development talent. It's academic. And when it's you and your job and someplace you've been, for 28 years, it's a completely different situation. In my case, because Cedric is private equity owned, when we sell the company, and we've sold it six times so far, same leadership team, and we'll probably sell it again, it matters to the new buyers a lot who's sitting in this chair. So we knew as a matter of good governance, as a matter of 
proper way to run a company that has that capital structure, that there would be a transition someday and that transitioning the leader was as important as making the decision about pricing an account or opening an office. It's just part of running the business. So I was able, even though, uh, you know, I spent um, every waking hour of the last 20 some years with Sedgwick and seeing it grow to this incredible organization today, the time to transition it to a new leader was not an abrupt thing. It was not a, um, you know, people say, oh my God, what are you gonna do next? And go, well, we've been planning this for three and a half years. And, you know, to have a new CEO take place, new CEOs are really good for an organization. They bring in new ideas, new talents. If, if my statement before was true, that the world changes every three years, it's changed seven or eight times in the time period since I've been the CEO. That's a lot of learning and adapting to catch on, and at some point, you're probably not quite as good as the next one's going to be. That's why they say, try to, if you're gonna find a successor, try to find somebody smarter than you. I, I mean, that's exactly what we should do. There should be many candidates out there, men and women that are smarter than you because they're more ready for the future than you are. It's just the nature of evolution. So the transition for me has been really good. And is the new leader at Cedric, Mike Arbor, going to do it the way Dave did? I hope not. I hope not. The world is changing. Our customers want different things. But I do hope that the values of Sedgwick, the the sense of caring for individuals, the sense of our role in the insurance industry of having such an important part of being the one that actually touches the individuals that all the rest of it is designed for, which is at the moment when something bad happens is when insurance shows its best light. And the people that connect all those promises of brokers and insurers to the claimant is the loss adjuster. And we have an important role in that. So I hope he protects that. I hope he nurtures that. I hope he understands the needs of our colleagues into the future, the needs of our employer customers into the future, the needs of our capital customers, the insurers into the future. And maybe sometimes he reflects on what Dave would have done, but mostly I hope he does what Mike wants to do and does it really well. Dave, I could talk to you all morning, but I know you have a plan to catch. Thank you so much for stopping by. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. That was David North, Executive Chairman of Sedgwick, and I'm John Weber for I Am Best TV. Looking to get the full attention of the insurance industry? We have the platforms that will do just that. Whether it be AM Best TV, AM Best Audio, Best Review Magazine, or Best Day. Find out more by calling AM Best Advertising Sales at 908-439-2200, extension 5399, and have a great day.